Would you please open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 6. I put in your notes also Mark 6. We're not going to, I was going to read that and I thought, it's just a lot of reading at the beginning. And so I put it there for you to look at later. I'm going to make a couple of references uh, to, to uh, what Mark says about what we're going to study today that I think are illuminating and helpful as, as the Holy Spirit has called Mark to show us some other angles of the event of feeding the 5,000 and walking, Jesus walking on the water. So I'll highlight those as we go. Listen, I was so excited uh, last week for you to hear Alan's sermon on John 5, 19 through 47. And the reason is because Alan DeSherry is one of my favorite theologians. Um, and I'm so glad you were able to hear him preach on the glorious deity and humanity of Jesus. Uh, I told him this before. I told him that I really was so glad to assign him this passage because uh, when Alan preaches on things like this, it's what John Piper calls expository exaltation. When Alan preaches on things like when Alan preaches on anything, but uniquely with that. And Piper says that preaching should not just explain a text, but also cause us to worship. Because the sermon is an act of worship in itself. I hope, I hope that happens to you. I hope that happens weekly for you, that, that your, the singing of your mouth may have stopped during the sermon, but your heart continues to sing because of what you're learning and hearing about Jesus. In other words, through the singing, though the singing of the church may stop during the, before the sermon and during the sermon, the song of praise to God should continue through the sermon. Why? Because the deity and humanity of Christ provides us with salvation through him. Because it provides us with satisfaction in him. And because it provides us with the power to serve him. That's why we magnify the living God as he reveals himself in Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, let's continue that theme. Let's continue our worship by beholding the glory of God in Christ by reading just a certain section of the Nicene Creed this morning as an introduction to everything we're going to look at today. Um, and that's in your notes. Um, and would you stand for that? Would you stand? And this, we'll read this together out loud. And would you join me in the reading of it? We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Amen, amen. And now grab your Bibles, and, and if you'll stay standing, and I'll, I'll read this 
if you'll just follow along and be listening to how the deity and humanity of Christ is magnified in this passage. And so often this passage is, is really not preached with that in mind. Let's, let's keep the deity and humanity of Jesus in front and center as the blazing center of these verses. Here, the inerrant, sufficient, authoritative, divinely inspired word of God. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, he, seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would, would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, well, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill... He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark. Jesus had not yet come. And the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take him in the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Well, Heavenly Father, we just prayed it. We just, we'll just say it one more time. Oh, Lord, show us Christ. Holy Spirit, thank you for attending this word and would you give us the grace to see Jesus in the word illuminate our hearts even as you inspired the writing of this word we love you and we praise you and we want to grow in your likeness for your glory in Jesus name amen have you ever faced a situation in your life that was so big or hard or painful that it seemed impossible to do anything about? 
chances are that there's at least a few of you that that's something that you're kind of feeling right now. Something that led to either worry or fear or discouragement or maybe even apathy. Have you ever faced something so big that you, you just kind of became apathetic about it? And did you look at your personal resources in hopes of finding something that maybe you had available that maybe could be big enough to help you overcome the problem only to conclude that there's no way you have enough strength for what you're facing? Not enough wisdom, not enough perseverance, not enough patience, not enough hope, maybe even not enough love to even make a dent in what needs to, to be fixed, to be solved, to be overcome. God bless you, sweetheart. Thank you. And when you looked at your possessions, you didn't have the finances or the education or experience or connections. <laughs> To overcome the issue either. You know, and I think what weighs on our hearts even more than when we're personally facing things like that is when someone we love or someone we have a personal responsibility to care for is going through something like that. You know what it feels like if you're a married couple when your spouse is facing something that is just bigger than both of you seem to be able to handle. Or your child is facing something that you just don't know how you're going to get through another day. Or maybe it's your parent. Maybe you're on that season of life and, and you're in that place where, oh my goodness, I'm facing so many big things because I'm facing caring for my, my aging parents as well as raising my children. And oh, it seems pretty big and heavy. It might be a neighbor that you have. Maybe it's ministry. Maybe you're involved in serving or leading in a ministry and, and, and the group you're caring for is just going through something that's just... I just don't, I'm boggled. I don't have any answers for. It might be somebody you work with or go to school with. These are times that test our faith and try our souls. And it's just easy to give up or grow numb or lack faith or lose compassion. It's just weird how we can respond to those things if we're not going to lean into Jesus. The, the, the responses of our heart are varied, and not many of them are any good, if any of them. Or how about this? Sometimes are you even tempted to compromise your faith? Because maybe if I, if I do things like the world does things, maybe I can get what I need. Maybe if I sin, maybe that's how this whole thing will be gone. And, and of course, God would understand that, wouldn't he? Oh, just in case you didn't know. No, he, that, that's not. Don't do that. Don't do that. So in times like these, let me ask you how you pray. So this is, there's two ways I pray. Let's see if any of these. I tend to, to knee-jerk reaction first, my first reaction to those kind of things. I tend to pray this. Lord Jesus, please give me the things I need to solve my problem. Is that a bad prayer? It's not a bad prayer. Should that, that be the first thing we pray? Lord, just can you keep giving me what I need? Give me the things that I need. Or would this be a better way to start? Lord Jesus, please help me see and believe that you will always be more than enough. Please give me the wisdom to trust and obey you in this trial. Wouldn't that be? a more God-centered 
God-exalting, God-trusting way to start our prayers and then look to him for how he will walk with us in the other needs that we're facing. That brings us to our main point this morning. Christ the Lord is more than enough for our greatest need. And when I say that, hopefully you're, you've been here for a while, you know that's speaking of the cross. It's speaking of the salvation we needed and could never get on our own. And provides us with more than enough to meet the needs of others, especially their eternal need. Can we read it one more time? Christ the Lord is more than enough for our greatest need and provides us with more than enough to meet the needs of others, especially their eternal need. Well, let's see, as we study this, if, if you conclude that that was a decent main point. Um, let's look at the first point this morning, and that's that Jesus is more than a prophet, more than a king, and more than enough for our need. Besides the resurrection, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. If we put the other Gospels alongside John, we get something of a timeline that helps us better understand when the miracles we're studying this morning are taking place. I think sometimes, I, you know, and I just really haven't, I don't think I've done a good enough job kind of saying, hey, listen, at this point in John, here's where things were, what was happening in the synoptic Gospels in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So here's a little bit of a, of a, a journey, a, a mile marker, so to speak, of where Jesus was in his earthly ministry. He had been ministering in Galilee. At this point, he would have already preached the Sermon on the Mount. He would have performed many miracles around Capernaum. He had, he had called the 12 disciples. He's already sent them out on their missionary journey. They're, they're embarking on their first missionary journey. He had given much of the teaching on the parables. John the Baptist had just recently been arrested and beheaded. So that was a very gripping time at this time, and it was by Herod Antipas. And after that, it seems like, if you, if you kind of watch as John unfolds, we kind of see that it seems like he's, he's withdrawing his, from doing as much public ministry as much as now. He's going to equip his disciples. He's going to, as the needs increase, as the persecution increases, Jesus focuses more care on those who are following him, and I hope you take that personally. He pushes into you in your greatest need. In fact, he's so close to you right now. All you have to do is whisper, Jesus. He's there for us. He's training them for ministry and mission, and he's preparing them for his death on the cross. So in spite of all that, an increasing number of people continue to follow after him. If he's not going to be in the city, we're going to go wherever he goes. We'll go to the wilderness to follow this guy. Not because they're interested in salvation, but because they wanted him to perform miracles to make their life better, to make their earthly life better. Even, even in those days, somebody was writing a book called Your Best Life Now. That was even back in those days. It's not a new title. That's the context of where we find ourselves in John 6. Jesus and the disciples had escaped the crowds for a while to rest. So I want you to picture this. They're exhausted. Anyone tired here? Oh, just me? <laughs> 
can I, can I get with you? Can I get a little bit of your strength and energy here? Um, they, they were exhausted. They had been working and serving. And, and, and Jesus had taken them up on this mountain. And here comes more people. Here comes more people. And here comes more problems. More people, more problems. Probably the better way to say is more people, more opportunities. <laughs> right? It's probably how we should say that. But, um, and so, and it's not only that there were more people, they, they, were, they had a certain something about them. Why? Because it was Passover. I, 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 calling this their, their 4th of July just doesn't do it. I, and some of the different commentators were saying, this was like their 4th of July. This was like their Independence Day. Oh, no, there's more than that. Um, this contributed to their attitude about what was happening. Uh, because these people were traveling to Jerusalem for the feast, but they also were carrying with them this hope and this zeal. Passover was a time of both religious and political and national zeal. And you know it. It's celebrating Moses and the Exodus, him leading the people out of Egypt toward the promised land. But they're also passionately praying for God to send them a delivering, miracle-working, sadly, militaristic Messiah to set them free from Roman oppression. So these are going to be a zealous people. They're not just sign seekers. They're, they're Messiah seekers. They're just looking for the Messiah that is of their making, a Messiah made in their own image. They're wanting a Messiah to be what they want him to be, not a Messiah for what they need him to be. Do you ever do that to Jesus? You shrink Jesus down because my, my problem, I cannot just, all I can see is my heartache and my pain and my sorrow. And that's all I can see. And the biggest need that I can even imagine is getting this away from me. And it's so easy when we do that, we shrink Jesus down to the size of a problem. He's so much greater than the size of our problem. Aren't you glad he is so much greater than your problem? Oh, let's, we want to learn lessons from these things. Well, the uh, authors, the scripture tells, tells us it's 5,000 men. Theologians estimate this to be 15 to 20,000 people. And you thought you had a big family, Stroops. <laughs> Can you imagine that? I mean, just take a minute. You're exhausted from serving the Lord. It's easy to justify not obeying the Lord because I've been tired serving the Lord. 20,000 more needs. They'd listen to Jesus teach all day, and as the day's coming to close, they were hungry. There was not enough money or food to feed them all. Little boy's lunch comes into play. We'll talk about that more deeply in a minute. Five loaves and two fish. Jesus takes the little that was entrusted into his hands and makes much out of it. Everyone is fed and filled, and there are enough leftovers to fill 12 baskets full. So what's the message? Depends on if you listen to televangelists or if you listen to the Bible. What's the message? Give Jesus your little bit, and he will make it a lot so you can have your best life now. Did I just kind of do a little accent? Yeah. 
is the message to trust Jesus for your miracle. Because your temporary needs and happiness are your biggest needs. It'd be helpful for us to remember some context to the story, some biblical theology, you could say, and how the Jews understood it at that point, and how they should have understood it because of what the scriptures were speaking to them. The Jews knew their Old Testament, you guys. They knew their Old Testament, just like we know some of the Old Testament. So come on, humor me and fill in the blanks. So if I say Daniel and the? Very good, very good. Noah and the? Oh, you guys are good. Jonah and the? Was it a whale? (laughs) Um, And David fighting? Yeah, that's right. Very good. Well, that's about where we would, if I were to ask you more, I, I, here we go. Mm. Oh, wait for somebody else to answer. Um, the Jews would have seen Jesus in this context, what was unfolding here. They would have seen Jesus as more than just a shepherd king like David. You remember something he wrote? He causes us to lie down in green pastures. Interesting, the scripture highlights the green grass. Our cup runneth over baskets overflowing. They would have seen Jesus as more than just a prophet like Elisha. Look at the text in your notes. This is from 2 Kings chapter 4. A man came from Baal Shalisha. He brought the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread They had been baked from the first grain that had ripened. The man also brought some heads of new grain. Give this food to the people to eat, Elisha said. And the servant said, how can I put this in front of a hundred men? But Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat. Do it because the Lord says they will eat and have some left over. Then the servant put the food in front of them. They ate it. And had some left over. It happened just as the Lord said it would. Wow. Well, this Jesus got to be more than the prophet Elisha. How about Moses? They would have seen Jesus more than just a prophet deliverer like Moses. In the Old Testament, the people followed Moses into the wilderness. Here, they're following Jesus into the wilderness. In the Old Testament, Moses gave them bread from heaven in the form of manna. Here, Jesus gives them himself as bread to reveal to them that he is the true bread from heaven that will save them from their sins and give eternal life to all who believe. So much so that they say that Deuteronomy 18 uh, is, is, is quoted really in the text. And it's in your notes. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So remember, this is a zealous time. Listen, I mean, so I don't think you have to think too hard about this. Think about how rabid we get politically. Think about how we can sometimes confuse being a Republican with Christianity. I'm not being mean. I'm not trying to be mean. I could say Democrat or Republican or Independent. Think of how often we can, we can use a platform God's given us really to shine the light of the gospel only to, sh- only to advance an agenda, a political agenda in the name of someone named Jesus. Oh, guys, this, this is, this, these were passionate people. They had nationalistic zeal. 
And Jesus knew they were ready to force him to be the Messiah they wanted instead of the Messiah that they needed. Listen, David and Elisha and Moses did what they did for God. What we're about to behold is amazing that our eyes could even read it and ponder it. Jesus does what he does because he is God. He is God. Now, doesn't that start giving you perspective on your problem? That starts giving us perspective. The problem was that the people wanted Jesus to be more than David, more than Elisha, more than Moses, but to save them from their situation rather than to save them from their sin. Things like bread and water and light, this thought came out of something John Piper had written that was actually brought out in several commentaries. Things like bread and water and light and healing don't exist for themselves. How often do we, want, do we stop there? I need, I'm hungry, I need bread, and I stop at bread. Thank God my hunger satisfied. The bread is supposed to be a, an example and a symbol that points you to someone who won't just satisfy your, your stomach, but your soul. Water, light, healing, none of that exists for itself. It exists to point us beyond ourselves to God as creator and redeemer and sustainer. The ultimate point of the feeding of the 5,000 was to point to Jesus as the bread of heaven. Not just a temporary need meter. The point was not mainly that Jesus gives bread to satisfy our stomachs. Jesus is so much more than a butler we call to bring bread for our bellies. And I got to tell you, so often that's what my prayers, I fear that my prayers sound like that too much. God, can you give me what I need to help me fix my problems? Again, not. God cares about every tear you shed. But he, but he wants to help you face your struggle by a fresh vision of him. Not just little answers that could help you maybe solve a temporary problem. You know why? Because having your momentary needs met will never change your heart. It's your heart that's your biggest problem. It's not what you're facing out here. So many times God, God puts, allows and puts things in front of us so he can show us something about our heart. And we're just about to see that in just a moment. He doesn't, Jesus is, shouldn't be known for just giving bread. Jesus should be known as bread. Amen? Okay, let's keep moving forward. So he's more than a shepherd king, more than a prophet, more than a deliverer. He's God, and he's more than enough to meet your greatest need of salvation. And in meeting that need, he will provide us everything else we need for life and godliness. If you need some scriptural proof there, Romans 8.32 is in your notes. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Second uh, Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. 
So now as we, go, as we break this down into some of the specific points, keep this in mind. Do we want Jesus, when just walking in this morning, what were you more aware of? Wanting Jesus for what he can give you or wanting Jesus for who he is for you? Let's go a little further. Second point is Jesus provides us with compassion so that we can be compassionate. 20,000 people, and Jesus looks to you to feed them. So what's your knee-jerk reaction? Are you, are you ready to take the discipleship quiz? Didn't know there was going to be a quiz today, did you? Should have studied. <laughs> so, um, sorry, it's in, the, it's in the book. I'm only highlighting what's in the book. Discipleship quiz, pop quiz. Jesus is not just giving this to Philip, precious family. This is a discipleship quiz for you and me too. Where are we to bribe bread, Philip, so that these people may eat? Jesus said this to test him. See, that's where I'm getting it, right? That's where I'm not just pulling your leg or anything. This is a discipleship quiz. For he himself knew what he would do. So it makes sense that he would ask this to Philip since he came from the nearby town of Bethsaida. And he would have a pretty good understanding of the resources in that area, how many restaurants there were. And where the closest H-E-B was. That would, be, that would be pretty logical for Philip to, to be asked that question. But Jesus doesn't need help figuring out what to do, right? He gives Philip and all of the disciples, including us, a test to see where their faith and understanding of Jesus is at this point of their discipleship journey. So that's, I, that's where I would love to just, let, let's, let's talk personally. Let's let the word talk personally. Let's let Jesus talk personally to you. What test are you going through right now? And God's not using this. He has no intention for this test to crush you. But it is to teach you. And it's to teach you about something about your faith. One, that if you're a believer and you're continuing to believe through your problem, it's teaching you that he's sustaining your faith. That should be a really good news to you. It's not up to you to just hang in there. He's sustaining your faith. But what else is it teaching about your heart? What is it teaching when you, when you see this big crowd and you're asked to do something about it? That's going to be a test for all of us here. Philip says, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for them to get a little. In other words, this is eight months of an average man's salary. If you saved all that up, that would not even come close to giving each person a tortilla chip dipped once in queso. It's, it's just nothing. I'm just trying to think. I'm, not, I'm, just, I'm just trying to get some perspective. It's just nothing. But Jesus wasn't looking for how well Philip understood the budget. He wasn't looking for a brilliant strategy of how to get from here to there. And those things are helpful. And we, we should have those things as a part of our seeking to know how to best steward what God gives us. But precious ones, this was not a catering question. This was a compassion question. That's what this was. That's the test. What is the compassion in your heart? Do you have compassion in your heart? That's where Mark helps us. Mark's gospel makes it very clear because it says when Jesus saw the crowd, his heart was moved with compassion for he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. So let me ask you, here's the quiz. What do you see when you see a crowd? 
What do you see when you see a crowd, especially a needy crowd? How about a crowd that sometimes hurts you? I think some of us just want to avoid crowds. <laughs> I, I can be there. Some of us see a crowd and we become immediately guarded and distrusting. I, I, when I get in, in a big crowd, I move my wallet from my back pocket to my front pocket. There may be some wisdom to that, but honey, honey. Yes, it is wisdom, but there's something else the Lord's trying to teach us. How about this? I think we can be self-righteous and think that that needy group shouldn't be so needy. They knew they were going to Jerusalem for the Passover. They, they should have planned better. They made their bed. Now they should lie in it. How would you like the Lord to treat you that way? He never treats you that way. Never will. They got themselves into this mess. They can just get themselves out of it. No one gets saved, right? If that's the Lord's way of saving people. Or perhaps when you see a crowd you'd like to help, but the need is so big, you really don't see how you can make a difference. Or you're so intimidated by the need that you find yourself don't, doing nothing. I think there's a lot of people who go, oh, I'm sad those people are hurting, but it's such a big need. I, I can't do anything about it. What do you see when you see a crowd and are you first moved with compassion? That's a, that's a discipleship test, isn't it? That's a discipleship test. All of the rest of this chapter is predicated on us learning that lesson. And so that's really almost a place. Can I just take a minute to pray right here? Lord, this is very convicting. And we're so thankful for the conviction. We want our hearts to be more like yours. You were moved with compassion for our greatest need and did something about it. Please, in the compassion that we gladly receive from you, would you make us compassionate people for you? In Jesus' name. Let's get a little bit more specific. How are you, are you moved by compassion when you just look at the crowd of one, your spouse? Are you lacking compassion for your spouse lately? How about when you see the, a, a little bit bigger crowd of your spouse and your kids and their needs? And it's so tiring. It's, I, I, I love my family, but I'm exhausted. And I, how about the crowd of 12, 14, 18 in your discipleship group? What do you see when you see your discipleship group? What do you see when you see the needs of a crowd of, two, of about 200 now in our Sunday morning gatherings? I really would like to ask you that one. I can tell you what I'm seeing. What do you see when you see that chairs are harder to find? Are you moved with compassion and want to be available for the Lord to do something about it? When you see the needs of our crowd of children in children's ministry, when we bring them up here on the stage and there's, there's so many kids, the stage is too small. 
What are you moved with compassion? When you think of the third through fifth grade class or the youth ministry and, the, their, and their needs or the needs of our singles in our church or our senior saints, you guys, are we moved with compassion? Are we moved with compassion? Are you moved with compassion for the crowd that lives in our church neighborhood? Are you moved with compassion for the people in the crowd of your personal neighborhood? How about the crowd at work or the ones you go to school with? Are you moved with compassion for the 150,000 Midlanders that live all around us? How about for the 7,423 unreached people groups? About 3 billion people in the world who have yet to hear the good news of salvation in Christ. So, so don't get squirmy on me. Don't... Don't start rationalizing anything. It's just one simple question. Are you moved with compassion? When Christ looked at us, he was moved with compassion because he saw that we were dying in our sins. We were hungering for true life, but we were looking to all the world has to offer us in terms of satisfying that hunger. Is the bread of the world instead of the bread of heaven. And in his compassion, Jesus does something about it. He entrusts himself to the loving will of his heavenly father. He leaves heaven. He becomes a man so he could provide you what you most needed. A savior who would pay the penalty for your sins on the cross when he died in your place, draining the cup of the wrath of God dry. So all the cup would be for you is a cup of forgiveness and joy. And to reconcile you to God and to give you a new life in him. And when he gives you a new life in him, he gives you a new heart. And guess what the heart is? Heart of compassion. See, if you're a believer today, you've gotten some bumps and bruises on the way. Maybe you've, you've kind of gotten hurt and you've pulled back a little bit. But that, that, that new life, that new nature, Jesus in you is still alive and well. Your capacity to be compassionate is, is all right there. It's just are you willing to, to move forward and to be compassionate rather than to just let that capability live in you third point is this, if we're, if we're moved with compassion, this is really good news. Jesus provides us with faith to entrust all that we are and all that we have to him. Andrew finds a little boy who has five barley loaves. So, okay, here we go. Don't think of French bread at HEB or Market Street or Walmart. It's tempting, isn't it? I, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm trying to watch what I'm eating lately. Um, I just, I used to be so taken by, especially when they came out hot, you know, and it's that hot French bread, and you're smelling it, and you just want to rip into one, and it's just so soft on the inside, and warm, and a good crunch on the outside. Don't think of that, okay? <laughs> I'm just, I'm sorry, I just really led you down a pathway there. Don't think of that. Don't think of a good old whole wheat loaf from... H-E-B, Market Street, Walmart. I'm, I'm sure I'm leaving out other well-deserving of mentioned stores, but think of something more like the size of an English muffin, a biscuit, maybe a scone. Five scones. It changes the imagery, doesn't it? And two fish. Don't think of salmon. <laughs> Don't think of trout or catfish or bass. 
Think of sardines. It, it, uh, some of the commentators even said it wouldn't have even been really a whole sardine as much as it would have been ground up into a fish relish that was... <laughs> oh, it was a great face, Casey. It was a fish relish, you guys. And that was likely just something to make stale bread have a little moisture and flavor in long journeys. You know, it's likely that Andrew wasn't seeing these five biscuits and fish relish as an answer. Like us, it was likely something he was putting forth as an excuse for not having to do anything. <laughs> There's nothing here. There's nothing we can do. They need to just go their way. That's a heart of compassion, right? There's nothing we can do about it, even if we wanted to help. We don't have anything in and of ourselves to meet the need. In fact, I'm going to bring in hopefully some gospel shadows here. In fact, some writers think he was actually mocking or despising the bread because it was so small. It was so insignificant. And how, be listening, how could something so seemingly insignificant and despised feed so many? How about the word save so many? He wasn't turning toward the bread and fish as an answer. He was turning away from it because it could never save anyone. Does that remind you of someone else who was mocked and despised and turned away from? All of us have done that. Mocking, doing our will, not his will, is mocking Jesus. Just so you'll know. Despising Jesus is doing our will, not his will. Turning away from him. Some people never thought, someone people never thought who would be the one who could give them the salvation they most needed to satisfy their souls and not just their stomachs. So let's just read that in Isaiah. It's in your notes. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. What could someone like a Nazarene do to save people from their sins, let alone give them food for their bellies? Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Oh, precious ones, someone insignificant and despised and rejected is the savior of the world, and the one who can... Fill the deepest need of your heart as well as your current needs and give you grace for your current needs. Jesus is the despised and rejected Savior. And he took the despised and rejected bread into his hands. That's how compassion is first to move us. So, just so, so let's kind of follow the compassion road. The compassion road isn't, I'm moved with compassion. Now let me see what I can do in my own strength to meet the need. The, the compassion road is, 
Oh God, my heart is beating with yours. I'm hurting when you hurt. I'm hurting about what you hurt about. I'm angry about what you're angry about. I love what you love, but I still don't have it. I, I still don't have what I need. So what do you do? You don't go to turn to the crowd and try to just give that whatever you have. You put it in the hands of Jesus. That's what they did. It's very significant. In all four Gospels, there's this, there's this transfer from taking this, these, this biscuits and sardine jelly. <laughs> and it's nothing in our hands. Oh, precious ones. When we put it in his hands, his nail-scarred hands, his hands that paid the sin debt for all who would believe, Jesus makes much out of little, doesn't he? He makes much out of little. That's how compassion should move us. We, we put in Jesus' hands the little strength we have, the little wisdom we have, the ex little experience, little education, little time, never enough time. And we get it out of our hands. Listen, the reason some of us are so miserable, and I'm saying I love you to pieces. I'm the biggest miserable person in here. The reason we can be so miserable is we won't let it go. We keep holding it. Somehow thinking that us holding on to it is going to multiply something in our lives. It's going to change our hearts. It's going to melt our hearts. Actually, I bet this is happening to some of us. We're holding on to it and our hearts are getting harder, not softer. The need's not being met. Your walk with God, you're wondering, why am I so dry? Because you're not taking your little strength or your little energy or your doubt or whatever unbelief you're struggling with, and it's not much. It's despisable. It's so small. But I'm going to put it in your hands, Jesus, because your heart is moving my heart with compassion, and I don't know what else to do. I'm just going to put it in your hands. Oh, but look what happens <laughs> when we put the little that we have into Christ's hands. He will provide what we need at the heart level. He'll provide what you need for your heart as well as what we need for our hands to perform his will. Jesus takes the, the bread and blesses it. And he says, this is likely what he said. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, king of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Isn't that just a story of his resurrection? Jesus' life was a seed that, was, that, that was died and was buried in the earth. And up from the ground, he arose on the third day to bring the bread of heaven for all who would believe in him. And as the disciples begin to pass out the bread, and they're experiencing, they begin to experience the real miracle of the story. Not that Jesus multiplies bread, but that he's able to provide us with more than we need to trust and obey him. It's not, it's not, it's not a catering issue. This isn't about catering. This is about compassion and trusting and obeying that God will give me more than I need to serve him. That God will give me more than I need for my crisis and my trials. But what are we supposed to be doing, guys? We don't, we're not, we don't get to hit a pause button when we're in the midst of our trials. There are people in our trials who have worse problems than you and I because they don't know Jesus. So we're walking through tear-filled trials, but, but there are people who need the saving grace of Jesus. So that's what he's, he's calling us to trust and obey. And here's what he's doing, for, especially for those of us who are going, oh, what difference does it make if I can just 
do I could, Maybe I could do one, but what difference does that make? Okay, I'm glad you asked. Here, let's look at this. He's able to provide us with more than we need to trust and obey him in seeking to meet the needs of others, especially their gospel needs. Keep that in mind. It's amazing. They don't know how he's doing it. They don't know. I don't get it. And you should see, the commentators are all over the map about how he did this miracle. And so everybody's trying to explain it. I think it's supposed to be unexplainable. Because isn't that your story? You look back through some of the trials of your life and you go, I don't know how you did that, Lord. I was exhausted and you gave me strength. I was hurting and you comforted me. I was wandering and you sought me and brought me back by your side. They don't know how he's doing it, but this is, this is my imagination, so be careful. I, I, I look at my basket, I look what Jesus has given me, and it's enough to feed one. Okay, here you go. You can take it if you want. <laughs> oh my gosh. I was kind of thinking that maybe nobody would want it and I could eat it. But I gave it to you. No, don't give it back to me. That's so nice of you. <laughs> so, ni so nice of you. But this is amazing. It wasn't. Here, I have enough for another one, another person here. Oh, this is so great. Well, I'm probably. Here we go. Is this the coolest thing ever? Is this the coolest thing ever? That's what the Lord wants to do with our hearts. To just fill us overflowing. But it's not going to happen sitting on your sofa. It's not going to happen isolating yourself from the body of Christ and, and going where needs are. Sometimes I think people don't come to the gathering of the church because they don't want to face people's neediness. Oh, and so is it any wonder that you start starving? You start feeling like you're starving. Why? Because you're not feeding people. Before you know it, 20,000 people have received more than enough bread from the one who is the true bread of life. And it says they were satisfied. And not only that, there were 12 baskets left over. In other words, Jesus is not just speaking to the 12. So he, in, in John, in fact, later in chapter, in chapter 6, Jesus calls the disciples the 12, the 12, the 12, the 12. So it's no accident that he's highlighting 12 baskets overflowing because isn't that the message not only to them, but to you? That I will provide you more than you need. Don't worry. Don't worry. Keep putting your life in my hands. Keep putting what you have in my hands. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. And that takes us to our, our last point. Jesus provides us with his presence as our peace in the storm. And as we read, as, that, as that, the feeding of the 5,000 comes to a close, I just want to make sure you see that. He's going to give you all you need, not only for your soul, but for gospel ministry. I just really want to, there's been so much prosperity garbage, so much privatization of Jesus. It's just me and Jesus. And, 
And if, and if, if I'll give a little bit in tithes, oh, he's going to make me rich. <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, just do these, these kind of things. God will give you more than you need for joy and contentment and peace and strength and courage and to share the gospel with others, to go to the neighbors and the neighborhood and the children's ministry and the youth ministry and the senior saints and the singles and all, just everyone that encompasses us, the 150,000 Midlanders. That basket is not your promise of a bigger bank account. That basket is your promise of a bigger heart. That's what it promises you. You'll have more than you ever dreamed because Jesus is going to feed you so you can feed others. Amen. Thank you. I shouldn't have to need, I don't need, I'm sorry that I did that. But I hope your heart says amen. So in John, it closes with the people concluding that this miracle shows that Jesus is the prophet like Moses. And if he can lead the people out of uh, Egypt uh, and into the promised land through Moses, then surely Jesus can lead us out of our problem with Rome. He can deliver us from the oppression. And you guys, I don't know about you, it would be easy to just preach these verses as a standalone sermon, but... We're in the middle of chapter 6, and as you'll see next week, this entire chapter is devoted to unpacking Jesus as the bread of life. It doesn't stop. So as you're, as you're studying your Bible, that should cause you to go, well, shouldn't that be just, because I was thinking, maybe I should have stopped there and just, did, let's do a standalone sermon on Jesus walking on the water. But it's not supposed to be a standalone sermon. It's partly explaining another discipleship test based on what they could have and should have learned in the, bre- in the miracle of the bread, there's another way that God's going to reinforce his promises to them. And you'll see that in the incident of Jesus walking on the water. I think it reinforces and clarifies the truth that Jesus doesn't just give us the things we need. Jesus first and foremost himself is what we need. It's the knowledge of his presence with us that, that, that stirs our compassion, that gives strength to the weary and joy to the discouraged and comfort for the hurting and peace in the storm. Jesus doesn't give us just bread to use. He's the bread of life both now and forever. So I just want you to accentuate life as much as bread because what the, what the scripture is saying is that you, if you have a relationship with Jesus, it should permeate everything about you. His life should and will permeate everything about you. How you think, how you ponder, how you pray, how you love, how you forgive, how you give. Everything about you. He is the life. But those lessons, sadly, are not just learned in Sunday school, nor in a, once again, too long of a sermon. Those lessons are learned through storms. They're also learned through storms. Do you notice the text highlights darkness, a storm, and the absence of Jesus? Isn't that kind of the story of our lives? <laughs> Haven't, when things are really dark in our lives and really stormy, so often it's because we lost sight of Jesus. It's, it may have been dark and stormy regardless, but it's worse because we've just lost sight of him. We've not been leaning toward him in prayer or praise or fellowship. We've been kind of hiding from people. 
The disciples were about three miles out in their journey to the other side when this horrible storm stirs up the sea. And in spite of how hard they're rowing, they're not going anywhere on their own. Anybody doing that lately? But this is a life and death situation. And they've already forgotten that Jesus was more than enough. And Jesus comes walking to them on water. Picture that. Jesus is king overall, isn't he? And he can command water molecules to support his weight as much as a brick road would support his weight. And just a thought here, I would suggest that we should not be most amazed that he walked on water to get to his disciples. I would be more amazed that he walked over their unbelief, their sinfulness, their selfishness, because none of that was going to separate them from his love. You shouldn't be amazed by that, and I should be amazed by that. Do you know what Jesus had to cross in order to prove his love for you? And he did it joyfully, and he'll do it again and again. He crosses so that we'll know it's his presence that we need, and that's what's about to happen. Don't worry, this is the end. The text doesn't really say they were afraid while they were rowing, at least in John. But when they see Jesus, they were afraid. (laughs) So that's when they talk about being afraid. And I think we should heed to that so that we're regularly acknowledging an affectionate reverential fear of the Lord. Are you aware of fear of the Lord being a quality of your life? We need to be growing in that. It's, It's a fear of the Lord that actually draws us closer to him, to know him and love him and serve him. You see, because when we fear the Lord, we won't be afraid of other things. That's really what happens. And so Jesus says those wonderful words, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's I. It could be translated, it is I am. I am the great I am. And in John's account, Jesus gets in the boat and suddenly they're at their desired destination. Wouldn't you like to have seen that? Did you notice John, the other other writers will talk about the storm being still. John doesn't say that because I think there's a truth that John is wanting to get across to us. And I think the truth is this. When Jesus is with you, he's your peace, even if the storm keeps going. That's the gospel. That's better than any prosperity, God-meeting, momentary needs mumbo-jumbo. We won't see heaven until heaven. Until that day, there will be trials and afflictions, and God will allow us to go through them so that we can see he's with us. And when you know he's with you, even in your deepest storm, you become a light in the darkness like you never imagined. People are going through the same sorrows as you, and they're weeping hopelessly. You're weeping hopefully. And they're going, what's the reason for the hope that's in you? And you'll be able to tell them, I have what I most need in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. That's why I keep believing in the storm. That's what's happening here. There's no indication that the storm stops or starts or whatever. It doesn't matter. Jesus is making himself known to me. His presence is my peace. Thank you, Jesus. Would you stand? You can look at this on your own, but they really shouldn't have been surprised by that. 
I put Psalm 107 in your notes. I hope that, that blows you away. <laughs> that this shouldn't have been a surprise to them. God already told them that Messiah would be like this. So here's what I want to do. Um, Eric, yeah, go ahead and come, buddy. There's just an odd ending to this story in the Gospel of Mark. And I didn't know that I shouldn't highlight it. If you'll read it this afternoon, it says that when Jesus got in the boat, some of the disciples' hearts were actually hardened. That's what I did. All of you who said, hmm, I was doing that too. Until I started realizing that, so they've seen the miracle of the loaves and fishes. It wouldn't surprise me that some of them really kind of wished that they would have forced him to be king right then. Just fix our situation, Jesus. Can't you just fix our situation? And, and when he doesn't, isn't it easy to get a little doubtful? Especially if your situation's lasting a long time. But even more, listen, just as one of your pastors, and I'm, I'm blessed to know a lot of you, you've shared a lot of your heartaches with me. Some of you have hurt big time in ways I can't, I can't even imagine. I think what happens to a believer until the word begins to highlight it and bring healing and strength to move forward, I think what happens sometimes is we get hardened in some aspects. Not hardened like losing salvation or anything like that. But there's parts of your heart that are hardened because you're still pretty upset that God allowed you to even go through what you went through. And you know what? The Lord wants to heal that in you. Because here's what it'll do. If you're starting to let a little resentment be there before God, or it could be, 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 be that you have with people who are supposed to represent God. And I, I hate that you've been hurt. I've been hurt. You don't know how many times over 30 years of being here, how many times that I've just almost gave my key. This is what I want to do sometimes on a Sunday. Here's my keys. You need, you need a better pastor. You need somebody. I know what it is to hurt. I think if we allow a hardening of our heart to be the response to, God, I, I, I know you've saved me. Thank you. I know you've met a lot of my needs. Thank you. But I still don't know why you let me go through that. And you've, you've hardened your heart. And it's, you've almost inoculated yourself from the life that Jesus wants to flow into that part of your heart too. He, he's your sufficiency. He's, he'll satisfy you and sustain you. He'll show you that he's been working all things together for your good. For those who love him, godly good, and those who are called according to his purposes. Maybe today's a day for you. The last part of that is, wherever our heart is a little bit hardened because of what he's allowed us to go through, it's going to directly affect the compassion that you give to others. It's just, it's just going to affect the way he wants to conform all of us to his image and not just the happy moments. 
if you would want someone to pray with you about that, if, that's, if that kind of comes close to home, um, you know, and I looked at our prayer people this morning, I've already forgotten. Don't get old, you guys. Don't get old. Can somebody tell me who they are? Kenzie? And who else? Sarah. Kenzie, why don't you come on up during this time? You know, I know Hugh. Hugh is right up here. Alan would be available to you if you'd want. Maybe it's something you'd rather talk to a pastor about. They would be available to you. I just, the Lord's moved with compassion for us this morning, isn't he? He's moving upon our hearts with his compassion to heal what's broken, to give us faith so that we can take the little measly life and our little, our little bread and fish jelly and entrust it to his hands fully to give us, to give him all that we are and all that we have, trusting that he will always be more than.